I'm really I'm really excited to have you guys on because I feel like it's not quite September yet, but as someone who grew up in the South uh, or went to high school there, like school has been in session for three weeks. I've got a lot of friends who are teachers, many of whom are sick now. And it just seems kind of like the perfect time as we transition into September. Back to school vibes are all around us. Yeah, I was time to get your pencils and PPE. Right, I was I was <laughs> noticing uh, um, some of the stuff that we've been covering lately. It's like, oh, schools are starting in two weeks, and this is a big deal. And it's like, I'm pretty sure this has been going on already, and that they're trying. To, they're, these are the people who are learning from all of the failures that have already happened, <laughs> or not learning, as it were. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've got a very special crossover episode. We've got our friends Lena and John from the podcast Work Stoppage joining us today. Hello. Hey, thanks for having us. We're so glad to have you. Uh, It's just me, Artie, and Vince. Um, Now that Phil's like told people that he's been in the hospital for the past week, feel free to bombard him with well wishes. Um, He did not have COVID. He's okay. Don't badger him. Um, And if you'd like (laughs) a second episode of Death Panel every week, become a patron. Support us on Patreon. Support Work Stoppage on Patreon as well. Couldn't do any of this without y'all. And uh, we have been talking a lot about school reopening, about what's been sort of going on in terms of the latest recommendations of COVID, the sort of politics behind it. And Work Stoppage has been covering a lot of the sort of... Unfortunately, so far, often lackluster attempts to sort of push back. Yeah, I mean, I was shocked while we were, while I was looking over some of the information that we were going to talk about on this episode, because like I already knew that a lot of schools were like really gung ho towards reopening and trying to get as many students in. Oh, we're prioritizing in person education, you know, this and that. And they have like a lot of kind of like language that, that gestures in that direction. But it all seems to be fueled by this pathological need to get parents back to work. Like it really doesn't have that mm-hmm. much to do with the children's education in the first place. And that's why I think that this whole like reopening the schools thing is being so heavily politicized because it it really is an economic issue. If these kids stay home, so many parents are not going to go back into their desk jobs and their, you know, physical labor jobs and their like menial service jobs like I have. So not that I have kids, but like. You know, if I if I did, I wouldn't be sending them back to school for sure. Oh, hell no. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about this like from a public health perspective and from a public policy perspective, which I think sort of also like the sort of conceptual idea of schools reopening is sort of like what we need as the precursor to the quote unquote return of the economy um (laughs) yeah which is you know particularly dangerous as a framing going into uh the probably second wave of escalation of this this pandemic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and there's there's gonna be like some talk of some of these things but if you actually look at a lot of these plans they're actually huge wastes in a lot of ways like we could actually (laughs) be focusing on on creating um distance learning and making everything you know, a lot more accessible and easy, but we're spending so much time on a bunch of bullshit that 
is literally going to get people killed that we're, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, we're misallocating the resources that we currently have available. Well, and then all these mm-hmm. ideas that like these school boards and, and superintendents and principals are putting forward to keep s- schools safe and keep students safe are either like one, there's no funding for them in the first place because we already don't fund education the way that we need to. We already don't pay teachers enough or two it's just like a huge waste of time that's basically like a performance that says yes we care about covid here's what we're doing and it's just a bunch of bullshit or three it's a bunch of responsibilities that are tacked on to the teachers already existing responsibilities some of them basically unattainable goals like making sure that all the kids in a classroom keep their masks on for the entire time they're in the classroom (laughs) yeah i mean i i don't know about you guys but i was enjoying digging through the cdc's latest guidelines because i think a lot of these plans whether they're about a workplace reopening, a college, a daycare, a school, whatever. Um, a lot of like the things that I've heard from people who are maybe anxious about going back to work is like, well, they say they're following the CDC guidelines. Does that mean I'm safe? Well, it's funny because like <laughs> even people who acknowledge that other federal agencies are being actively wielded as obvious political instruments in order to like advance a reopening agenda <laughs> will look and then say, oh yeah, but the CDC says it's okay. Like, right. look at that. Um, I the, keep thinking yeah, about... the CDC th- says it's totally fine for me to be in this room only three feet apart from like a child full of germs just <laughs> spitting yeah. all over the I, room for I eight absolutely hours. trust the CDC <laughs> guidelines that were released on you know the ceremonious way that you release things on a Friday when you want everyone to notice them right that's exactly the time of <laughs> right. Friday evening when you release stuff right that uh, that you want people to actually be able to see well and all the people yeah. who are like pointing at this too it's all out of convenience for whatever their position is like if they're an administrator at a school or they're just somebody who generally has like an anti mask vendetta or they're like, oh, COVID isn't real or whatever. Then suddenly they trust the CDC right. like it's the Bible, even though like, you know, six months ago, if you had asked them what they thought of the CDC, they would have been like, slash their funding. Right. 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 They were or calling they, like, Fauci a murderer. And now they're like, well, I mean, <laughs> and not in a cool 80s act up way. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's, it's also like important to uh, to to if you look at a lot of the articles that are actually talking about this or any of the people who are talking about it, it's always like they're six feet, but like, or as much as they can be. And if you right. actually have mm-hmm. seen any of the photos of some of these places, these desks haven't moved. There's already, no. like, there's not, there's three feet between the last desk and the wall because that's how it's been for a long time because we have so many overcrowded classrooms. Yeah, well, it's like, how are you going to move the desks further apart when you already have 40 students to a teacher in not even 100 square foot classrooms? (laughs) I don't even I don't know about you guys, but I thought the HVAC recommendations were particularly funny because most of my public school education occurred not even in buildings with HVAC, but in temporary trailers in parking lots. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I'm really not totally sure where the money to invest or even get the engineer to come and do the check that the CDC is recommending would come from, Um, especially if you've like like so many school districts are just portable classroom after portable classroom with a window unit if they have air conditioning at all. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like where I grew up in Michigan, in some of the smaller towns around the area, like a lot of the schools are one room K through five schoolhouses. How are you going to ventilate that? Like the CDC guidelines were like, make sure the HVAC technician runs the air on full outflow for two hours before and after. <laughs> That's never going to fucking happen if the guy at the school even knows how to do it in the first place. Yeah. The HVAC totally. technician, by which you mean the teacher who comes in, turns on the window <laughs> unit and oh maybe God, it works seriously. or not. Like, yeah. yeah. 
Well, like, have I you mean, ever tried to like watch a teacher struggle with technology? Like, if they can't even, no offense to teachers, but like a lot of but older, offense to the technology. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> But like if you can't even figure out an overhead projector or if you struggle to rotate a PDF, now you're asking these people like, hey, could you make sure that all of the airflow in your building is properly regulated before, (laughs) during and after school hours? It's like, yeah, I don't think there's anybody remotely qualified to do that, even in this county. Right. You're a science teacher. You you definitely know how like a uh, uh, an HVAC condenser works. Right. Right. That's. Or do I I need to call the technology teacher in here? Right. And are we getting more allocation of funds for all of these additional needs? Of course not. And and I think it's particularly telling that that Redfield's statement, actually, that went along with the CDC guidelines. Now, if you don't know who Robert Redfield is, he is a personal fave to hate for me. Speaking of murderers. Yeah, he's uh, he's famous for peddling a fake AIDS vaccine in Africa and running a abstinence cures AIDS uh, public information campaign. So real. What? Yeah. That's <laughs> you know, his experience. Public health official shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Director of the CDC, a.k.a. Um, vaccine quack. You right. know. Yeah. Uh, so he he put out this statement accompanying these new guidelines that had a this literal quote in it, which was, we owe it to our nation's children to take personal responsibility to do everything we can to lower the level of COVID-19 so that we can all get back to school safely. It's an abstinence-only like, approach to he, not getting COVID. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. If only it was an abstinence-only approach to not getting COVID, they would order us to all stay in our fucking houses. <laughs> I mean, if you take this into consideration with what also happened this week, which was that teachers were declared to be essential workers. Not just that, critical infrastructure workers. Right. Oh my God. Right. Um, <laughs> and the CDC said, remember how we said you should test asymptomatic people? We were kidding. Don't do that anymore. <laughs> oh my so, God. <laughs> so being classified as a critical infrastructure worker means that teachers who are exposed to coronavirus but who show no symptoms can return to classrooms and not quarantine for 14 days and also not get tested because no need to test anyone if they don't have symptoms, right? So this This is is basically like saying, let's just let this spread like wildfire among faculty and staff of schools at the very least. Yeah, Mm -hmm. basically. Yeah. Well, that's really fucked up. I mean, it's just another thing on top of all the bullshit teachers already have to put up with all the time anyway. I mean, they tend to make like, what, 20% less than the Mm -hmm. average position that requires the same level of education. So then on top of that, it's like, hey, also, you might die. And a lot of you are older because teaching tends to be a lifetime profession. So most of you are at elevated risk as well. Also, also, can you continue to pay for uh, all of the school supplies out of your own pocket? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, so how can much you bring in your own PPE along with those Ticonderogas? Yeah. <laughs> also, I mean, like the, the children who are going to be at risk, because like, uh, like not to uh, like discount uh older people dying but children are gonna die too and like what about te- like all the people who are gonna go through all the trauma of literally seeing mm-hmm. their friends or their students like disappear oh, totally. from classrooms mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah and who've already yeah. gone through it too mm-hmm. who right. especially at the beginning at the outset where um when people when schools closed down in the first place i mean the to me the saddest thing about this entire thing is obviously this is going to be a completely failed experiment um because we're going to probably go right into another wave i mean and and then like yeah as you're saying lena like the the sort of like not only knock on trauma of this but the as we sort of um 
you know, we, we had a we had a big conversation actually about disease process uh, and coronavirus in our most recent patron episode, which came out on Monday. And basically, like one of the main takeaways that we wanted people to get from that is that while well, yeah, there are there are certainly clearly there have been demonstrated and studied like risk factors uh, that make uh, it more likely that you'll have severe complications because mm-hmm. of the way that the immune system works and it's and the way that uh, COVID seems to trigger responses like this can basically be like anyone like as Lena you're mentioning like um, kids certainly but also like young teachers um, people like young people who are like like new custodial staff or something you know uh, Mm -hmm. and like anyone um, regardless of like whether you would think of them as sort of the like naturally weak population or whatever which is the sort of inverse of the uh, not inverse but like I feel like when you when you sort of rephrase any any possible way that you can rephrase like at highest risk, like Mm -hmm. betrays what that actually sort of means is like the people we just kind of assume are weak or something. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like it's not just teachers and students, too. And it's also facility staff. Right. It's Mm -hmm. one thing to be uh, saying, okay, we're going to put. Uh, everything in staggered time, right? Where we're going to have some teachers come in this time with these students and everybody's going to be in a pod so that, you know, we <laughs> will handle this and, and everybody sort of stays together in these little cohorts so we don't have to clean the whole building. Well, called the McKinsey method. What about like the fact that there's <laughs> probably like no more than three people who clean the whole school? Right. Mm-hmm. So what, like, are they going to have to clean everything? Are you hiring more people? people like what's what's the deal here of course um, not. this this, will, uh, this, will, this again goes back to there's no allocation of funds for that mm-hmm. yeah right i mean what about the pair of professionals there's a whole thing in the cdc guidelines about students with disabilities and they're like you know acknowledging the very real issue of some people you know needing the services that they get through in-person education through paraprofessionals who come into the school who do therapy who do speech work who you know work with special needs children you know all sorts of shit right because in a lot of ways schools kind of rely on these paraprofessionals who are almost like traveling experts right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they work at multiple schools so you're going to have these kids who are have extra needs that require them to be in person because of the paraprofessionals, but the paraprofessionals are still going to be traveling from school to school. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we're going to end up with the exact same situation that we saw in nursing homes for the very same reason that employees in nursing homes often work in multiple facilities because the jobs don't pay well. And that mm-hmm. is the nature of the job because they won't give them, you know, enough hours in one place to, so you cobble together a couple things and make it work. So there are so many other positions, be it uh, food service staffers, mm-hmm. paraprofessionals, you know, aides, guidance counselors, personal care assistants, all that stuff. Like a lot of those people work in multiple schools within a district. Well, they're infrastructure yeah. now. Yeah, right. their infrastructure. <laughs> well, and even beyond just all the people in a school, like kids are a very active part of a lot of their family members and even just friends' lives. So if you have a few mm-hmm. irresponsible families here and there, or you have people who are like, oh, let's take our kid to go see their grandparents or stuff, before you know it, even if the kid in question is asymptomatic, you've unleashed this whole chain of contacts with other people and opportunities for the virus to continue to spread. And then that makes the workplaces that everybody's so eager to get back to right now just as dangerous, because all it takes right. is one person with a kid in school who gets sick, and then they can infect their entire 
entire office and then we're right back at the beginning where we were at the like fucking four or five months ago i mean the joke right. actually is is that we are actually having more cases and infections and deaths per day than we were having four or five months ago mm-hmm. we're already when we shut things down yeah. right like we're already like now at nearly <laughs> double the <laughs> daily infection rate of what we were at back then so like it's it's not even a like we'll be right back where we started it's like wow this is going to even get exponentially worse than it. Yeah, we're just, we're just proudly marching backwards is like essentially <laughs> like what's what's happening. But the other thing that I think is so I mean, is particularly galling, too, is that, you know, there are all of these like school districts, school administrators who have decided basically to just not talk about the active infections that are going on yeah. in their yeah. schools. So, you know, like it's John to inspire talk- confidence. Vince, right. You know, <laughs> well, of course. But when you talk about the 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 situation of like a kid, uh, you know, infecting like their grandparents, the the their their parents, coworkers, it's like it literally you know, for a lot of for a lot of parents and students, they couldn't possibly even know that they were doing something unsafe because they hadn't been told. Like, it's right. so it's just so insane that 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 not only they would advocate for uh, school reopenings, but that they would just, you know, that that's that school administrators would just be like, yeah, fuck it. We're just not going to tell so anybody. These people are are complicit in murder. In my opinion, yeah, 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 basically, basically. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, exactly. I'd actually, you know, think thinking about this actually in preparing uh, to have this conversation, I was struck by. um, I was reminded, particularly with the like teachers as uh, critical infrastructure workers, as essential workers, thing of this conversation that we had a long time ago, which was, um, I think, uh, I think Vince actually said at a certain point pretty early on in the pandemic, actually. So go ahead and like pat yourself on the back, Vince, for being a bit of an oracle here. But you said something to the effect <laughs> I, of I, like, I, I know, I, I mean, a Sandra moment. You said something to the effect of like, yeah, I mean, basically, it sounds like one day they're just going to shift what all of these uh, they're just going to slowly start to shift what all of these words and all of these guidelines fun- like functionally mean. And we'll just end up <laughs> in a situation where like, okay, everything is reopened again. And they'll be saying it's time for reopening, but we're all, everyone's already at work still. Yeah. 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 Like, oh. yeah um, it's the, it's a logical extension of the six feet. If you can, Right. Right. Exactly. Well, everything is hit with so many qualifiers. It's like, well, but we have to consider the economy at every turn. Yes, we're trying to keep these people in nursing homes safe, safe, but the economy. Yes, we want to keep the students safe, but the economy. Essential workers, same thing. It's like every group that comes up, it's like, we're doing the best we can within the constraints of our economic ambition. And it's like, that's just not (laughs) fucking good enough. And also, if you actually had any economic, like, I don't even understand this, because even with the internal logic of trying to make as much money as possible, wouldn't you want to just take a break, let it go away, and then get right back to normal business? Like, it doesn't even follow its own internal logic. It's like there's a well, fog that doesn't let people see more than a week in front of their own faces. It's, it's, very, it's, very, it's very kind of you to, to think that capital could, could, be, could be so uh, so good to people. It's a, well, it's a dollar sign-shaped fog that uh, seemingly seemingly comes over people's faces but the other thing that i think is also so not only tragic but fucking dumb about all of this is that like basically all of the measures that you would need to take to make distance learning sort of somewhat doable and effective are also things that 
mitigate inequality more generally <laughs> right yeah and like ultimately i know that's why none of these fucking school administrators you know or or cdc officials actually want to do them in the first place but you know if if really you did have uh the community or the economy's fucking interests at heart you know you would think about maybe maybe taking some of those steps because you know I don't know. Down the road, it might be helpful. Well, I think you're right. I think it's absolutely because if they stopped everything to actually help people or even do fucking anything to help anyone right now, it would set a precedent right. that they mm-hmm. are actually responsible for helping us when we're in trouble, which they don't <laughs> right. want. Right. I was just going to say, you give somebody a free laptop once and where does it end? <laughs> right. Well, I, but that also, yeah, it, in a funny way that also supports, um, do you guys know what the reasoning was uh, for why the school the public schools were not closed in New York City during the 1918 flu pandemic. Hell yeah. <laughs> do you know? Be? No, I don't actually. Uh, I, I assume it has something to do with the mayoral election. Y'all, not even. You all are going to, you guys are going to really like this, I think. Um, yeah. I'm excited. Let me know. <laughs> the reasoning given apparently, or I don't know whether this is like uh, apocryphal or whether uh, like, and has, has been sort of like the reinterpretation historically of why, mm-hmm. Uh, or whether it was like a contemporaneous account. I, I don't know the history that well, but I do know that one major narrative about why the schools never closed during the eight, 1918 flu pandemic, uh, why they weren't closed specifically in New York City, was because the view was that schools were seen as a place that was like safer and cleaner for many students to go versus the <laughs> tenements that they lived in. Uh-huh. Which were overcrowded and dirty and, you know. Intergenerational households sharing bathrooms and kitchens on the same floor. Extremely low income, like poor, underprivileged, you know, whatever, like whatever word you want to use, word you want to use for it. But yeah, basically like people were poor and they lived in bad conditions. Um, And so (laughs) the idea was that they would be safer at school as opposed to, I don't know, you still have to go home. That gives me an idea, though. Like the best way to handle this pandemic would just just be get everybody off the street. Like if you have a house, go to it. If you don't, we'll get you one done and done. Right. Right. Or we can abolish the family, give children autonomy (laughs) in their own um, studio apartment somewhere. (laughs) Starting at age five. Can you imagine how many Home Alone 2s we can make? He was fine. He had a great time. I know. Yeah. Just like give him all a credit card, mint the coin. (laughs) Did I I miss the meaning of Home Alone (laughs) 2? One of us did. The meaning of Home Alone 2. Like all Home Alone movies is that you simply don't need your parents. <laughs> you right. can just walk away. <laughs> you can you can just make a bunch of Rube Goldbergs that uh, that will keep you safe. It's basically a tower defense game. Yeah. It's, it's amazing because I, I feel like the biggest fear here, right, is that the economy can't be re- reopened. I'm like laughing as I say that word. That the, account, the economy cannot be reinstated back to its former accelerationist glory if uh, we do not open the schools, right? This is clearly... As a form of child care. As a form of child care, right? I think it's really interesting because one of the things that I I, uh, heard in relation to the essential worker classification that the Department of Homeland Security issued earlier this week was that historically, child care providers have been labeled as essential workers, but absolutely not teachers. And that this is actually kind of a new... Um, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures, this is actually hmm. kind of a new policy development and classification of these workers. And I feel like right now is kind of the perfect opportunity because for some, you know, maybe radical demands, because they're, 
the uh, mot- motivations are so obvious, right? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. so obvious why they are making these really dangerous decisions and, and what the actual point of it is. And yeah, Redfield can say, oh yeah, it's really important that your kids like are socialized and receive the support and we feed all these kids and it's really important to get them back there. But no, it's about getting people back into the workplace Mm -hmm. yeah well and and this actually i i want to go back to something you mentioned just a a minute ago about multi-generational households uh one of the Mm -hmm. things that john and i covered on one of on our most recent episode were uh worker were poultry plant workers in arkansas who Mm. are uh, marshallese and and are having lots and lots of exposure to COVID and are extreme risk and they are people who are in multi-generational homes and so not only are like these kids who are going to go to school and get sick and bring it back to their multi-generational homes where the older people in the family will be at risk uh but also i mean like these families are they're going the students are going to school so that the adults can go to work right Mm -hmm. Right. exactly Exactly. and they're all going to get covid and bring it back to their (laughs) multi-generational house well i think i mean maybe that's a good uh moment to sort of transition a little bit because i feel like um you know we've obviously been talking about this uh stuff a lot but one of the reasons so like one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you guys about this um lena and john is like you know, work stoppage, I feel like you guys do a really good job of um, talking around so many of the, you know, I feel mm-hmm. like there's like a, there's a big surge in an almost like possible reawakening or a moment of a possible reawakening of like the American labor movement at the moment with just like a ton of uh, labor actions happening, whether, and, you know, I think you guys do a good job of assessing <laughs> to some degree whether uh, they Their efficacy. go far enough, I suppose. But because yeah. um, mm-hmm. you guys have been talking about teachers unions and and uh, I think actions by workers around uh, like work stoppages around schools and withholding labor. Uh, and I was just yeah wondering like how, from your guys' perspective, how does that seem to be going, I guess, yeah. on the whole? Can we get a, a work stoppage te- uh, <laughs> educational labor update? I think that <laughs> we've consistently said that like we're, we're, we profile really great actions or even like some mediocre actions that get a little bit of critique uh, or, or like good, re- good actions that d- deserve critique. But I think that one of the things that we do notice is that uh, we're not getting a lot of news from a lot of places where we saw, uh, Detroit, Chicago, mm-hmm. New York, we are seeing some big cities and, uh, some, some rural areas, uh, though when it comes to schools, I don't, I don't think that we're seeing enough action yeah. really. I, I right. think that we're like, like we s- said earlier, I mean, the schools in the South are already back. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and like a lot of these groups are just they're making good demands, but they are I think being a little bit limited in their idea of what they can get. Like they're basically saying mm-hmm. like we just need PPE or we need extra staff to help clean the rooms or hazard pay or or whatever and it's like those are all really good things that you should definitely be asking for, but I think at this moment like when you're getting classified as a critical worker and mm-hmm, the pressure right. is basically on your tiny little sliver of the American populace, your little career group, like people who are teachers and administrators and facilitators and everything to get the rest of the country in shape to get back to work. You need to take a moment to step back and realize the power that that puts into your mm-hmm. hands. Like teachers have not just been facing difficulty since the beginning of this pandemic. Like the reasons that they can't handle the pressures this is putting on them right now is because they've already been underprepared to do their jobs for like the last, you know, I don't know, probably as far back as schooling in the United States goes 
goes. So mm-hmm. it's it's just it's very. I don't want to be too hard on people who are definitely like making strides and making advancements, especially because I myself am not like a labor organizer or anything. But there right. is a part of me that kind of says like. I, I like what you're doing, but I really, really wish you would go further or you would form mm-hmm. like stronger national coalitions or drum up support outside of the, the circle of people who are attached to education. Uh, mm-hmm. Something, you know, something or, a little bit I more mean, grand. Even just expand the demands to include, um, you know, representation for the workers who are inside of the school district who don't have union representation. Like yes. in New York City, I think it was yeah. 72 DOE employees died. 28 of them were teachers, but 28 of them were paraprofessionals. Mm-hmm. And most of those paraprofessionals don't have uh, unions in other states. So yep. like, I, I just feel like there's such a missed opportunity and you guys do a very good job sort of covering the, not only the pressures that are, that are sort of applied, um, but sort of what the actual like leverage is in the situation. And I feel like what's happening here is that, that a lot of the teachers strike actions that are happening are sort of playing by uh, rules that don't seem to acknowledge their power right now. Right. Like mm-hmm. you said, oh, like yeah. we were talking about the, um, I mean, they, they have almost like a generational opportunity or like right. a once in a generation or something opportunity, or I don't even know about generate, you know, like capital they has have an, never needed them more. Right. 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 <laughs> They're the premise under which, as we have been talking about so much of reopening efforts can happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this goes all the way back to one of our very first episodes when we're, when you say like you need to strike while you have the leverage, that's right. it's super <laughs> important because, uh, your boss will use any opportunity to change your work conditions for the worse. You need to use this opportunity to change them for the better. It's just yeah. just how it is. Well, and I think a lot of what we're seeing in teachers, and I might be a little off the base on this, but my instinct is that a lot of what we're seeing in teachers groups, unions and whatever, reluctance to really make truly what I would say like are appropriate, but what people would think are like grandiose demands is that they've been conditioned for so long. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a teacher, but we've all been in school and you you remember what teachers were like. Like a lot of them are people who are not enjoying their lives, who are having a very difficult time. They work a demanding job. They look very browbeaten all the time. And it's hard for me not to think that there's some kind of like... Uh, internalized idea that like there is a limit to our power as teachers. We're just cogs in this system. We're really just here to teach the kids. And it's like, yeah, you're here to teach the kids, but because that's hyper important, your position is hyper important and you deserve right. to be supported and, and, and given the opportunity to not feel like you're throwing your life away on, on just some noble dream of educating kids. Like you, you should be able to have a good life doing oh something gosh. that's that valuable to the community. So many, so many jobs are glorified and then shamed at the exact same time. Totally, this is one of yeah. the things that I, because I, I come a little bit from like the music industry, uh, and and working in some of those places, they want you to be thankful that you even get to show up. Oh, like yeah. they, they'll oh, yeah, underpay totally. you to because they think that you should just feel good to even be in the presence of these people, and I think that that's fucking bullshit. Mm-hmm. Totally. I mean, yeah. Every creative industry. <laughs> Welcome yeah. to. Yeah, Vince is like that. Sounds like the last five years of my employment. Exactly. <laughs> and and then, so teachers are the same. Like they, like they're saying, oh, your job is so important. You're so lucky to do this very rewarding job. Why don't you beg for scraps? Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think I mean, I, I in a way, this sort of goes back to even the having, for example, like experienced that sentiment of 
you're lucky just to have a job. You're lucky Mm -hmm. just to be here. I've experienced that everywhere from like working at an Apple store to basically like showing at an international art gallery. You know what I (laughs) mean? Like I'm, I'm not even kidding. And I feel like that, uh, that, the the way that sort of every every aspect of of economic activity within like our political economy i think um Mm -hmm. encourages that especially with at least i'm speaking for the united states encourages that and that's why i just think like um you know for example i think i would i would love to see uh there, there to be more possible for a a like national movement of teachers to say like, you know, we're, we are going to strike and we're going to like band together with like Mm -hmm. NNU to like fight for Medicare for all, like as Mm -hmm. part of one of the demands, like we can say like, you know, the teachers could demand not only safe, (laughs) safe uh, schooling or whatever, but also that like they should, that the federal government should, as I mentioned before, like mint the coin or do like the, Mm -hmm. at a bare minimum, like reinstate unemployment benefits or something like that, uh, provide, provide like childcare or what's the, you guys mentioned something on the show, uh, on your show a while ago that I thought was really good, which is the, what is this? 42069. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Plan. <laughs> yeah. Can you explain Can that? Can you break down the 42069 work week I thought it was a pretty listeners? good economic plan. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. honestly sounds like ideal actually, and quite doable, frankly. I think it was just a meme that, that I found cha- the 42069, uh, work week, which is four days a week. Uh, and no more than 20 hours in that week. So you're basically yeah. doing, you're doing four or five hour days and you're getting paid $69 an hour. Nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and that's your take home perfect. too. That's, that's after tax. Nice. <laughs> I, but I also do want I do want to say one last thing though. I mean, Artie, you are, you are absolutely on point though. Is like, it is every single job like in the United States. It's, you are lucky that we're even letting you eat. That oh, is yeah. the center right, right. here. Well, it's and then there's wild. also like, it doesn't matter what job you have. Like at Starbucks, they were like, you get free coffee and you have health insurance. And then I worked at a beer <laughs> store and they were like, you get to buy the beer at cost. And then I worked at a parking <laughs> company wow. and they're like, oh, you get a free parking space. Aren't you lucky to work here? And I'm like, no. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, to be honest, from a public health standpoint in the era of COVID, like the 40 hour work week is actually not good at all we would be way better with a 420 work week right with no longer than five hour days four days there you go that's a COVID appropriate kind of thing to go back to to go back to the sort of and regular appropriate right no exactly (laughs) no but like to go back to the like hyper dense work week and like workplace density that we had Mm pre-COVID is going to be statistical genocide and it will yes. be along class lines and along racial lines. Yeah. You know, this is what we saw in 1918. We talked about this like a long time ago. But one of the things that Artie and I found so funny when we were like looking into the 1918 pandemic, this was like months ago, was that all these firsthand accounts of people who had survived, who were children during it, were like, we went to the chalet. And so <laughs> yeah. when I came home from the chalet, all of my little friends were dead. I grew up alone in my house with four housekeepers because all of my little play friends died while I was at the chalet waiting out the pandemic. And it's like, wow, it's so obvious who survived. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, COVID killed my grandmother's favorite pony. (laughs) (laughs) Right. There we go. Right. And it's just, you know, I think right now 
our our public education system has more power than it's ever had. I think generational opportunity was the way to put it already because they physically cannot achieve what they want without public schools open. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In person. Absolutely. So of course that's the priority, right? So now the priority of every labor movement should be preventing schools from opening, whether it's a nurses union, a physicians union, uh, I don't know, like auto workers, because Lena, as you were saying, like with the example of people in Arkansas who are now also getting hit by a fucking hurricane, by the way, like Mm -hmm. anything having to do with school reopening is a workplace issue elsewhere also. Well, and that interconnectedness of these issues is really what I think is at stake here, because that also ties back to like the kind of seemingly self-imposed limitations on a lot of demands by these working groups is that I think they're kind of afraid to admit that this has all already been politicized, right? Like if you're a right. teacher's organization, you're like, oh, well, we want to look out for ourselves and our students, but we want to avoid wading into politics as much as possible. <laughs> like that's a commonly held attitude. And it's like, this is all, this is all politics. The reason that we want to send the kids <laughs> back to school is politics. It's economics. It's, you know, it's everything. It's all, it's all tied together. And I think that if we really want to fight it effectively, we need to figure out a way to be tied together on the other side of that, on the organizing side, on the trying to move against private health care and, and reopening schools and, and all of this other insane shit that they want to do so they can keep making money off of death. Like if we don't right. have some form of a united front against that, it's just going to be a power imbalance and we're simply going to lose. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. well, which is why I think that um, the sort of the attitude that, for example, again, not to totally center this only on teachers because there are a lot of different um, groups that obviously are are essential workers to make a uh, school run but like for example the uh, the American Federation of Teachers uh, the AFT like I think it was uh, in like late July their guidelines that they published basically Mm -hmm. they were like okay we're going to on a case by case basis (laughs) authorize AFT chapters to strike uh quote, to ensure safe uh, students' safety uh, as a last resort. So, like, <laughs> literally foregrounding, you can strike only for student safety and as a last resort. And I know that there are a bunch of um, things, like, even in, like in New York, for example, if you're organizing, a t- uh, like, a, a, any public sector uh, worker strike, like, literally, you can put the, or- like, there, there's a, a law that's been on the book since, like, the late 60s that is literally you can put organizers in jail, Right. Mm-hmm. Of mm-hmm. labor strikes. Right? right. So it's just like it's it's so frustrating because at the very moment, at one of the very moment when we would actually need a really strong national organized labor movement, I feel like it shows that like so much of the overall structure is mm-hmm. is totally it's just become like kind of liberal fantasy union. Right. Or I mean, almost. everyone got all upset about Janice as some sort of like unprecedented limit to right. the the power of public sector unions, which was like just because the like money situation could change because of like membership and dues, et cetera, with, like without even ignoring the fact that like what is a union that can't bargain? What is a union that can't strike? 
Oh my How gosh. How many the, unions exist that can't strike? So many. Holy I, shit. I, right. <laughs> you're, you're just like speaking to the things that I want to scream about when it comes to contracts. <laughs> because like seriously, there are so many contracts that literally have anti-strike clauses in them. Like how, mm-hmm. the, why yeah. the fuck do you have a union with an anti-strike clause? That doesn't make any sense. You need to, every single union needs to go out there and get that out of their contract. Get that mm-hmm. out of there right now because you, you're, you being able to withhold your labor is the power that you have. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those situations where the company and the the state that whose jurisdiction that it's in, like they infiltrate union organizations right. and they get them to put that kind of language in there so that now if you want to get yourself out from under a difficult working situation, you not only have to fight the company, but your current union at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's really tough. Like I really have a lot of admiration for people who organize without a union or who do wildcat actions that go against whatever their national leadership was saying or whatever. Oh, hell but yeah. at the same time I have like, I, y- it's hard for me to even comprehend how difficult it must be to not only deal with the oppressive working conditions that you have, but then also to have to see through all the double speak and bullshit that these corporations will push into union contracts and, and force unions to adopt or, or mm-hmm. get a couple of, you know, corruptible people from the leadership and, and get them to sandwich it in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, it just, it reminds me of the hypocrisy of like access to affordable care. Like you technically have labor protections. You technically have, you know, collective bargaining. You have access to collective bargaining. (laughs) And like, yeah, yeah. You, you get a contract and you get to quote unquote negotiate, but like, you know, you don't actually have any real leverage. Right. Well, the other thing, the other thing that like, uh, that, that AFT statement, like, to me uh conveys is that they are not confident in either the negotiating position that they have or the the fact that uh you know that they're they have like the agreement of their members right like putting out a statement like that at all it just to me like telegraphs like weakness from the beginning like oh yeah well i mean it's it's also simpler than that in that like you know the I mean, the AFT, for example, very famously in 2016 endorsed Hillary Clinton basically top down in a totally top down decision without like actually doing any sort of like, uh, you know, rank and file vote or anything. Um, It just it just like leads me to encourage people to look up like other wildcat actions and like learn about how other people have organized outside of the union that they have, because Mm -hmm. clearly if you do like I, I alluded to earlier that you don't have like labor power if you can't strike what well, the truth is is that you can strike anyway so yes. so yeah, it's very impo- it's very important to know that like like honestly fuck the rules fuck the law go and strike <laughs> well people don't realize that it's like it's not illegal to strike without authorization like you just can like for some industries it is illegal like it, it's illegal for certain um like public sector and emergency workers to strike but like also I don't know if that's even appropriate in all the cases yeah, that it's also been placed in because it's like well, it, 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 it's a it's a reasonable thing to think about. It's like well, there are certain people who like just for the health and safety of people really need to be on the job. But then when you compare that to the negligence that we're experiencing during the pandemic, it's like well, that can't be what we're working towards anyway because that's clearly not anybody's 
interest at the top right now. Right. Because anyway, mm-hmm. there would be like people, these people who, again, you know, are those classified as like essential or whatever are the people who would be striking for like people who are, for, for example, like in general, like public sector workers who, um, you know, they've taken, they've historically have taken like a lot of hits in terms of their ability to strike as even as I mentioned in the like New York example. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the very people who would wield strike power, even, you know, a wildcat strike or whatever about like their material conditions and the conditions of their job are exactly actually the people who you would maybe want to be able to wield some mm-hmm. sort of labor uh, leverage. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just to- well, because it's this uh, it's this idea that like, oh, the more critical they are, the more that we need to make sure that they're always there. And it's like, well, that robs them of all of their organizational power, like their their power as an industry was to say like, hey, we're not going to pick up the trash anymore or hey, we're going to stop seeing patients in a hospital or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and that's right. purposeful. No. And I mean, it's it's interesting because right now, uh, like New York City, teachers are considering uh, strike action, which will be one of several historic violations of something called the Taylor Law, which is a law in New York State, which prevents public sector employees other than railway workers from striking. And it's interesting because, like, you know, in the past, when uh, teacher strikes have been used, uh, quote unquote, politically in New York City, they've actually accidentally done a lot of damage to communities of color, the strike of 1968. And that's like Mm -hmm. a very good example. and now, you know, the New York City Teachers Union has an opportunity to, like, make amends for what they did in, in Brownsville in 1968 um, and do something Ocean to protect... Yeah. yeah, Ocean Hill, Brownsville. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To do, you know, to protect the city, right? To protect the fucking borough of Brooklyn, which, like, had the most deaths in their own departments, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's... But my concern is that, you know, some of the people that are involved on the leadership side in these unions... Um, they have really bad track records of like, oh yeah, representing their constituencies well, shall we say? One yeah. who you love to hate, Lena, is uh, is our friend Randy, yeah, Randy, Randy Weingarten. <laughs> I think we we covered uh, we covered her. Uh, I think I don't know a couple episodes ago, but it was it's just uh, lots of lots of milk toast re- responses to things, just like really poorly thought through, very bureaucratic, like the Joe Biden of responses. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, Randy got on my shit list when she wrote an op-ed in Politico coming out against Medicare for all, um, and was sort of behind. She said she well, she basically the union had like or they had like endorsed Medicare for all, and then she wrote an op-ed saying we're down with Medicare for all as long as there is room for us to have like private, our private insurance plans ported in as long as they meet certain minimum quality <laughs> well, standards. You can, oh you can always tell when union leadership are pieces of shit when they're like, yeah, <laughs> so we actually don't want uh, broad uh, expansions to uh, social welfare programs specifically because like guys we need a treadmill to run against with the contract (laughs) negotiations like we get these from our benevolent uh, you know employers or whatever and if we don't have anything to to negotiate over I Randy Weingarten will be out of a job (laughs) what I think what I think actually makes me the most upset about that is that one of the things that we tell people about organizing 
is that when you organize and you create a union, you're actually not only bettering your own work conditions, but you're bettering work conditions for people in similar industries or even just through your communities on whole. And it's one of mm-hmm. the great reasons why we do organize because we are actually helping far more than ourselves by going out there and demanding justice at our workplace. I mean, but then for someone to come out and say, oh, well, I mean, like we fought for, for health care, so we can't let the other people have health care. That is the most backwards and like mm-hmm. basically right. anti-union like propaganda in my opinion. Totally. It's, it's such bullshit. And it's like, I feel like union like labor rights or, you know, the, the things that unions had fought hard to win used to be like a source of pride. Right. And mm-hmm. now they're, it's like, you know, that was the union advantage. That was like the reason to do it. And right. now their message is like, quit asking for stuff. It's better than the rest of them have. Shut the fuck right. up. Pay your well, dues. Right. Union it's leadership like has like the good union leadership is like militant and drawn from the ranks of the people who actually mm-hmm. work in that industry. Right. Not some oh, yeah. like attorney who's like, I'm going to make my career becoming the president of the United Federation of Teachers and then go on to be on the board of the AFL-CIO or whatever. Like it's not a fucking <laughs> right. career path. You should right. want your job to not be necessary anymore. Like what did like right. Bakunin mm-hmm. say or whatever? He was like, I dream of a world in which I would be guillotined <laughs> as a conservative. That's the fucking energy I want from my union yeah. organizers. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like right now the biggest impediment to like negotiating a living wage for unions is healthcare. I think when you pull most union workers who are going into like a contract renegotiation, overwhelmingly often the response is that they would trade five years of healthcare cost stability for a 10% wage increase. Like, I mean, in a second. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and so the sort of union advantage that you used to have, which was better health care, right, because you could collectively bargain. Now they like, you know, unions in a lot in a lot of senses have the same crappy private insurance. It's expensive and like puts so much cost on the actual worker as everyone else. And it prevents them from asking for better pay or better working Mm -hmm. conditions because it's always on the table as the dental plan like that fucking famous (laughs) simpsons episodes which every time i like think about this stuff all i hear is just like they wheel up the the keg of beer uh, and say like by accepting this like you trade your dental plan for a free keg of beer from the power plant i think actually (laughs) the sort of like the 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 weird uh sort of like psychological landscape of how people understand labor and labor power in the United States. I mean, not, not everyone obviously, but like in a, in sort of like broad category, like, you know, uh, liberal or bourgeois society, uh, circles or something. Mm -hmm. I feel like, uh, is like, a really good actually it's funny because like you know we planned this and then in the 24 hour not 24 but maybe the 12 hours since we like decided to to all uh do this together like like a really good example i feel like came up which is the whole like nba situation where (laughs) people started getting in arguments over like whether it was a strike or a boycott and yes you can argue that whether it's a strike or a boycott or what is known as uh a secondary boycott, et cetera. But I feel like it's, it was really telling and interesting to see even let's say a lot of Rose emoji Twitter learning about what a wildcat strike is for the first time. <laughs> clearly. No, well, that's not the to thing. Cast some shade, I mean, but. I, I, 
I said this on Twitter, but like, I think a lot of like leftists or anti-capitalists or organizers or whatever who aren't particularly interested in sports, like don't realize what the gravity of this situation is because sports and issues surrounding sports are beamed into billions of people's heads Mm -hmm. every single Mm -hmm. day, like tens of times a day in a way that other platforms just don't reach. Like YouTube and podcasts cannot touch sports like uh, ubiquity in the world. Not yet. This is definitely something that I, that I, that I want to talk about because I, I, I saw an article that was the Detroit Lions basically canceling a practice. They pushed it back and then they canceled because they were, it was in um, solidarity with um, the Kenosha victim. And the whole article is just like, oh, well, they pushed a practice back and they, they talked about it. But th- what the thing is, is they it's a work stoppage. They said, right. we are not going to practice. They didn't say, mm-hmm. this is a labor action. This is the right. team saying, saying that we are going to hold solidarity with this victim of, of police violence. Like that, That's not what yeah. the article said. The article said, well, well, they they pushed they they canceled the practice and then they talked about it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I think that's maybe even what I mean too is the the sort of not just the sort of like within the the, the Twitter bubble thing that I sort of right. uh, that I sort of mentioned and foregrounded a little bit too much, but the sort of the the general viewing of this because it is I mean it is important to sort of be able to contextualize at least by using the right language like contextualize what is going on here because otherwise you get things like um i saw this thing earlier today that basically jared kushner uh Mm -hmm. is like quoted in politico saying he's like going to reach out to lebron james today about the situation (laughs) um because he, he said and i quote uh you know the the nba has the luxury of taking a night off from work but most Americans don't. And it's like, okay, (laughs) I I guess what I'm saying is if you don't, um, if you don't have like, for example, press or people in general, like framing this as, as what it is, it's very easy for, you know, I don't know, shit heels like Jared Kushner to kind of like spin this in the way that only any, you know, a good, uh, like American capitalist follower would, right. Mm -hmm. Which is just like, they just took the night off. Well, but it's interesting that he felt the need to name drop LeBron James, right? Because I think that speaks to the fact that somewhere in Jared Kushner's mind, he knows that like what happens to the NBA is more important to people than what happens to him. (laughs) It's going to change their opinions more like hold up a photo of LeBron James and Jared Kushner and how many Americans, what percentage of Americans can identify each one? Like Jared Kushner's getting his ass whooped. But (laughs) but also, I mean, like that's just a way to get people to click on an article too. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so much work done to try and not frame like professional athletes as workers in any Mm -hmm. any way, shape or form. And I think it's so funny, too, because it just directly ties into the sort of needs and directives of like the corporate advertisers. Right. Because Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, like uh, athletes, though, they are like often like reported to be quite well paid many of them start as college athletes and it's Mm -hmm. it's a very like hotly disputed uh point whether or not college athletes are like workers or students and whether they should be paid for their labor or not and it's so funny because it's like well if you classify uh, a basketball team saying we refuse to practice as a work stoppage then do you create a legal argument for college athletes to be workers? Hell right? yeah. And then for mm-hmm. all college yeah. students to be workers so they right. get paid to study instead of paying Hell to study. Yeah. <laughs> well, Hell yeah. yeah. 
I love it. No, and it, it's like, okay, sure. Like, this just reminds me of, like, exactly what you were saying earlier, Lena, of, like, all these, like, unions who, um, in their contract, like, in the contracts they're negotiating have concessions to the corporations, which prevent them from striking, which prevent them from stopping working, because the most important thing is that, you know, if capitalism pauses for a second, it'll... I guess die like a shark, right? Uh-huh. It's got to yeah. keep swimming if, if and we're, accelerating. Like, yeah. So, to, so to bring so to bring this kind of together and maybe move us to the next point. It, it one of the things that I talked about in our last episode was the uh, Detroit teachers, and one of the demands yeah. within that that w- that was on their list, which was uh, to allow teachers to not come if they or a family member was at risk for COVID-19 and and John and I had a good laugh about you know we're all at risk I have a pair of lungs like right. I don't understand right. what, what sort of qualifications are you trying to trying to put here because mm-hmm. you're automatically doing concessions like and, and that, right. that it's a very very common thing is like pre-conceding it's they're literally being Democrats not only like in the government <laughs> but in our unions it's unacceptable Wait, Lena, you're not enamored with the idea of being means tested to see if it's even worth it to try and keep us alive? Because I'm 100% in support of that. You know, I mean, I think it's a great, you know, American tradition to sacrifice your body to capital and science, right? Yeah. What what else is, what is more American other than uh, sacrificing your your body to... uh, to a war machine, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I figured that that would be a good way to like segue into like what some of the teachers uh, or what some of the schools in different areas are doing. I think one of the ones I definitely saw was what was happening in New York with like teaching outside. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is a recent development, which is pretty funny. Yeah. To yeah. I just, I, I love just that love it's like being proposed without like, especially in New York City, which like, yeah, there are less cars driving around, but like, it's not a good thing to like put a bunch of children outside for eight hours in New York City air. That's just my personal yeah. opinion. And then also not make only- a teacher shout over the wind and city noises just to be right. like, what are you going to give the teachers a fucking bullhorn? You can't even give them gloves and masks. No, no, you can arrest. will definitely you, accidentally you get, get peed a, on too. You get arrested for having bullhorns. That's what I hear. That's what that, yeah, oh. Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. I, I also think that it's very, it's like, sure, they can shut down the roads for us i'm like i'm fine with them shutting down the roads for us what i'm more like do you know where in the country new york city is do you know of a little like a little phenomenon called winter like right exactly (laughs) i think they're probably counting on us not having winter because last year it only snowed once and was like 60 degrees for a month we're already over this covid bullshit right now it's time for covid to be over and i think it's time we finally put our foot down about winter too that's not happening this year either (laughs) yeah 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 Mm -hmm. <laughs> meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, all the libs are just uh, just advocating for the end of daylight savings and uh, well, I mean, deciding to I call think it a day. Lena and John, you make a really good point. Uh, re our lungs argument and who is or is not at risk. Like as we talked about in our our episode from earlier this week, like regardless of whether you're showing symptoms of COVID or not, right? Like what happens when you catch? Say I'm a teacher who's been like sneezed. In, in the face. I was teaching outside, but I just got droplets in, in my face. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, whether I show symptoms or not, 
the virus will be in me replicating, doing damage. My immune system will have to turn itself on. That will also do damage. And that doesn't exclude me from, you know, infecting other people who might have uh, symptoms, but also like having serious complications down the line. Because as we as we were talking about, you know, the virus itself is not what's killing people. It's uh, people's own immune systems. It's really this mm-hmm. sort of second inflammatory cytokine storm phase of um, actually the disease is technically SARS-CoV-2, but it's the second stage. That's the really dangerous thing. So Mm -hmm. yeah, like it matters that you have symptoms insofar as that, like one, you're sick and like that's got to be dealt with, but two, like that's when you spread. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're, you know, I think there's a big focus on like, okay, well, kids don't have symptoms. It's fine. And, and, you know, people are arguing like, okay, like, yeah, but kids can be super spreaders. And many medical studies show that children are above and beyond always drivers of, of pandemics. Um, but I, what I feel like is missing from this conversation is a, is like a, a question of whether or not we want to take a bunch of children and experiment on their immune systems. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? that's definitely what's happening. And not even children, just a bunch of people, too. These are like we talk about medical ethics and COVID and making sure that people have informed consent. But what we're really proposing to do is to like experiment on a huge amount of people using a pathogen that we don't know very much about and with no control, too. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. not even like we're going to get good data out of our like horrible, you know, Human trials. Right. Like, it's not even like anything that we learn from like reopening schools will be useful other than like we shouldn't have done that. Well, and that's the thing, like with how with how soupy it is and how few control variables there are and the total lack of scientific like methodology or reasoning going into any of the fucking decisions we're making. No matter how this turns out, the people at the top are going to get to say they did a good job. And if they Mm -hmm. have the right media spin on it, a lot of people are going to fucking believe them. And they write the fucking history of books. They print the online articles. You know, it's like this article you had in the notes here about uh, this, this, uh, um, pediatrician who was writing about how like ki- children don't oh. actually spread influenza as often <laughs> as people think that they do. Yeah. And I, I kind of like looked into her a little bit. It seems like she's just like a doctor that the New York times calls when they want someone to agree with them and put a quote mm-hmm. in an article. <laughs> That's um, a serious discipline. That's its own specialty within medicine, which is, uh, you know, the people who manufacture complicity. Hey, Hey, yep. that is a very lucrative grift. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, this I can is, only imagine um, people are surprised that like, like, you know, anti-vaxxers have MDs and it's like, yeah, like, you know, anti-vaxxers <laughs> are workers too. <laughs> oh not God. good ones. A medical degree is not like a golden uh, seal of approval. Like, yeah. you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like uh, there are bad, horrible doctors who do terrible things. Like that's, that was Nazi Germany. That was kind of like the most famous example. Like an MD does not make you like a hero of any kind. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Um, and I think, you know, especially when you have the idea of like, okay, we've got to classify who is protected and who isn't, who needs to stay home and who is, you know, strong enough to go into the workplace. That's all based on the CDC guidelines, which as we've (laughs) seen this week are not really a line in the sand, but more just like a, you know, completely sort of. More like the sand itself constantly shifting and not sands of time flowing through your fingertips, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and it's 
you know, it's fine to say, okay, we don't want to make our, you know, our teachers strike political, but, um, like, I'm sorry, the parameters that you're even like basing your demands are, are being politicized. So like too bad. It's already happened. It's funny too. And, and this, um, you know, speaking of, as we were talking about not having, uh, not basing things on, uh, studies or, or Mm -hmm. trials or like good or like trying to look to any good or like modeling or data sets. Right. Um, <clears throat> to to make a number of these determinations one of the main things being pushed is this oh it's like a good it's a it's a safe thing to reopen schools mm-hmm. uh right is so there are a lot of like meta analysis studies that look at like oh you know here are like 13 14 different studies about um you know xyz same topic right we've, right. we've mm-hmm. talked about them before including stuff about covid so about uh, medicare for all and financing and stuff like a mm-hmm. year ago <laughs> um but we a lot of a lot of the the reasoning used um is like the point to these like meta-analysis studies of like okay so during pandemics have schools being open or not like influenced the spread of disease or anything mm-hmm. and what they what's funny is like so they the, a number of these studies basically say well inconclusive and so because it's inconclusive <laughs> because it's inconclusive they say that like this is being pointed to as like a, oh look well it's probably safe if this if the meta-analysis of the studies is inconclusive but when you actually look at those what they are actually saying is it's inconclusive because one the data collection, the data points that they have are so bad. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's so like the historical information about some of these things, whether it's uh, what is it like? In the, obviously, 1918, as we mentioned, but like 1957, uh, 1968, fall of 1968, uh, both of those flu pandemics. Um, like when looking at all of those, the data is like pretty, pretty uh bad which is funny because it lines up with what we're about to produce right. for the coronavirus <laughs> too and on top of that when you look at some of the underlying stuff because they do say well it's inconclusive but if you do look what's interesting is the school districts that stayed open had pretty high levels of amp- absenteeism <laughs> um, as in like a ton of students called out sick for prolonged periods of time <laughs> viruses cause so, truancy they don't really cause right? illness exactly and yeah you know, well vote camilla I think we're going to, yeah, I was going to say, we're going to, we're probably actually going to see like the cops criminalizing people who, who refuse to go to school too. I mean, like, you know, it's going to happen mm-hmm. on, on the, on the fringes, like someone doesn't go to school and, and they didn't sign the right piece of paper. And so then the people are going to jail. And so then the, they go to jail and they get COVID because that's where you get COVID for sure. Yeah. And then- well, they'll throw, they'll throw parents in jail. <laughs> yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it won't even be the cops rounding you up, but the cops will just let, you know, white malicious roundup truant students oh, oh yeah. yeah now that they're using unpaid interns to that phrasing is like there's an emoji on the death panel discord with the, with the bleeding eyes and it's the cringe emoji <laughs> <laughs> yes absolutely. i love that that's the most frequently used emoji in the discord hands down Fr- too. frankly <laughs> i will i will be like texting or i'll be on twitter or Wishing something and I, I i go to like put the little like bleeding eyes emoji <laughs> and i'm like oh that's right that only happened that's only something that i can use in our little siloed uh in our little bubble like utopia yeah um yeah i i don't know lena you and i were talking about this earlier this week like 
there's just so much that that teachers could do right now. One of the things that I feel like I, I really saw, like when Artie and I were upstate for the uh, New York Health Act hearings, mm-hmm. we saw... It was like last summer, I think, actually. We saw a bunch of um, public sector unions testifying against Medicare for All. Uh, Sorry, testifying against like a New York State single payer program. And it was like absolutely infuriating. And we saw this again and again with, you know, the way that labor unions were responding to Medicare for All. And it sort of became like clear to me that that there was some sort of like anxiety here Um, that, you know, health in and of itself is such an important thing for capital to continue to reproduce itself. And the kind of capitalism that we live in now is one that like pretends that things like never stop growing. Right. Right. And there's like this idea from this horrible economist named Herbert Stein um, that people call the Stein's law, which was if something can't go on forever, it will stop. But <laughs> Yeah, I nothing ever like goes up right up to its absolute limit and then just shudders and dies a painful death. That has never <laughs> happened in history. Right, right. no. And it's funny because Herbert Stein was like, you know, of course, on the Council of Economic Advisors, um, you know, was the predecessor to Greenspan. Uh, he was also apparently the original advice columnist for the Dear Prudence column, which is super <laughs> weird. I don't know why a degree from Chicago, like University of Chicago in economics makes it so that you can give advice. But I have a feeling that has a lot to do with uh, why so many self-help books are about personal finance. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Stein's Law in, in one sense says like, you know, if something uh, can't continue, that it'll stop. It also kind of does actually just say that like trends that can't continue won't. And I think Mm -hmm. like capitalism is obviously like an economic trend more than anything else. And what COVID really is threatening is like the realization that this is just an economic trend and not like a law of nature. And that's sort of like where right now, like public school workers are sort of sitting at the axis of is like, you have personal uh, safety, public health, and you have capitalism. And mm-hmm. they are right now diametrically opposed. And uniquely, more than any other time, we need public schools to stay open for capitalism to proceed unabated, right? Mm-hmm. For the trend to continue. And I think that's really why we see so much of the focus on reopening schools. you know. And it's so important, I think, for people who work in schools to do everything they can not saying, you know. No, I mean, I'll I'll say, I'll say by any means necessary. Like yeah. <laughs> that just just right. it's just a classic phrase. It has a couple meanings. Look them up. Yeah, <laughs> let's just say if you have to bring any uh, speed run strats into the mix, I would encourage you. <laughs> this is the time. This is the time to make risk reward assessments and just fucking go for it because yeah. like, right. we're we're all counting on you. And I hate to like put this on teachers too because I know that they're at the nexus of this and like they didn't ask to be, but mm-hmm. like that's where they are right now. And you know, I I wish every teacher out there well. I hope that you're staying safe and and I hope that you're also 
really taking time to reflect on what you mean to society and what you mean to your superiors and your administrators and and to see how those things are actually in conflict and not cooperation. Right. And Mm -hmm. actually, like things might seem hopeless and inevitable, but every teacher now has way more power to protect their students than they actually realize, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a really important translation and, and conversation that I think needs to happen because you know, as it stands right now, we cannot allow schools to reopen. It will be a public health disaster. It has already been a public health disaster. Florida reopened schools. I have a lot of friends who are teaching there who have told me a lot of things that I unfortunately cannot mention on the show to protect their privacy, but it is dark. Mm -hmm. So many kids are sick. So many kids are are testing positive for coronavirus. They were open for like 15 days and the cases started rolling in like clockwork. Yeah. You know, um, this is yeah. not going to work, period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, not- I mean, one of the things that teachers are known for is is uh, do is like being the, the first re- reporters of child abuse. And, Ooh, yeah. um, and I'm going to say, let's keep that trend going because I'm seeing it all over the place right now. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, a lot of these CDC recommendations that were released to schools are are essentially like a cost benefit analysis. Um, they kind of indicate to, to school districts how to make a cost benefit analysis um, that's sort of appropriate and apply it to decisions of weighing reopening in person versus public safety. And they're actually giving recommendations on what to prioritize, actually. And they're saying, you know, we're not prioritizing students. We're not Mm -hmm. prioritizing staff. You know, that's it. It's really plain as day. They want to get their human capital back to work. And their human capital, unfortunately, has these pesky kids. yeah that that's that joke does need to bleakly end in silence yeah (laughs) (laughs) absolutely it's uh i i think you know because it's so much more than just the one workplace too it's not just schools it's Mm -hmm. every workplace right now hinges on school reopenings and so many people can be protected and saved and we could have such better outcomes if we sort of reshape the way that we're organizing around one thing literally you yeah. know, I think the possibilities are, are quite immense. Like teachers mm-hmm. could ask for a lot. It'd be really cool to see that. Yeah, double their mm-hmm. salaries. Sure. Triple it. Mm-hmm. 420, 420 work yeah. week. More. Well, they're going to need it, you know. Well, and the yeah. fucking, well, and the teachers, you know, like we need to shut down the schools, but then we also need to take care of the teachers in the intervening time. Like the thinking yeah, absolutely. is absolutely. if the teachers all say, oh, we need to shut down the schools, then those teachers are sacrificing at least half a year, more likely an entire school year, at least mm-hmm. of their pay. And like, that's not acceptable either. So mm-hmm. that's what's thorny about this is it's not just one problem. As soon as you start to address this problem, it highlights all these other problems with society. That's why we're seeing this profound reluctance to actually act on any way that would make progress. And instead, they're like, let's have the classes in a park. Let's erect a bunch of tents on campus. Let's do yeah. extra ventilation. Like, no, just don't Rolling bring the students plastic in. Hey, shields. Tents are for <laughs> private school students. <laughs> you know. Oh, my gosh. T- tents is the good shit. No, yeah. no, really. The, I mean, that's unfortunate like the and the funny thing actually you know since you brought that since you brought that back up the the most messed up thing about the new york city plan to like decide to just uh, you know prioritize having school outdoors which you know under nor- normal circumstances like fine whatever like you know we can joke about air quality all, all we want but like the they 
they, they announced on like a Monday that it was going to that like schools, individual schools had to make their plans for how they were going to implement outdoor <laughs> learning. Oh, my God. And it was due that Friday. What? So having like, yeah. So what what is actually even more messed up about this is uh, honestly, this act by to me, this act by like by the mayor's office, by um, by Bill de Blasio in the in the mayor's office. Mm-hmm. I, I keep thinking about how when when um, the the. Uh, the Trump administration made the announcement that was like f- like foreign students can't renew their visas unless uh, the the school that they're going to um, it like offers in person classes mm-hmm. right oh, so geez. from my like from my perspective knowing a bunch of uh, educators in different universities but also like having like a sort of relationship with the university like administrators lost a full week working on that, trying to make that work. And to Mm -hmm. me, this sounds like the exact same fucking Mm -hmm. thing. Like what's a good way to divert uh, the energies of a group of people who are actively in discussions about whether and how to strike. Well, Right, to, like force them to have one week to come up with an outdoor learning plan. And make it so futile and depressing that yeah. like it crushes their their souls exactly. in, the, in the process. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely all of that, but also I mean like the idea that we're going to be putting so much effort into these plans to get people to go back to school in person is a huge waste of resources when we could literally be trying to make plans for people to be learning from home. Like mm-hmm. the, the, right. the, yes. the the that's that's what I keep seeing throughout this is like we're gonna have tents who like why are we paying for tents when we should be giving webcams to children mm-hmm. <laughs> right or like giving everyone better internet and free yeah, yeah. like free, a lot of kids free, better don't internet. have a lot of kids don't have a laptop in their house or even necessarily no. access to a smartphone plus it's like if you're learning online a smartphone is not a good enough way to be plugged into your class anyway so it's like Again, it just drags up so many lingering economic issues of inequity that are already present in American society and just throws them right into the foreground. Right. I've talked to a lot of friends with kids who have said that it's it's like made them realize their own relationship to their housing is very different than they thought. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, I just want to I just want to say because we haven't been explicit about this. And then I, d- I just want to say because I feel like I've been picking this up from especially again from my like people that I know who like teach at universities or, or work mm-hmm. at universities. Um, but what I think is especially messed up about this is ju- just as in sort of throughout the entire course of this pandemic, but certainly right now where we're saying, oh, yeah, in like two weeks, it's fine to reopen or like, oh, in I mean, that's that's I'm speaking for being in New York, like, oh, in two mm-hmm. weeks, September 10th, yeah, we'll just open, reopen schools. It's fine. Submit your, yeah. submit your outdoor learning plan. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in plenty of places like already, well, schools open even, you know, not just K through 12, but also universities, uh, are open, uh, again for, for fall semesters and quarters and stuff like that. But what's, <laughs> what is, uh, really interesting to me is I'm, I feel like I'm seeing almost no one uh, also even realize that like actually it's not just that like it's a unique opportunity but uh and and it's a, a unique point of leverage but also in terms of scope and scale like the spring is not gonna be too different right <laughs> like, yeah honestly <laughs> this like, last thing was basically I during know, the summer i know that like the biggest most most important most like plastered liberal poster uh like uh whatever like like star of uh of like late night shows and like podcasts and shit anthony fauci is (laughs) like 
saying, oh, yeah, you're, we're going to have like a vaccine or something by the end of the year or, or early in, in like spring. Like this is not going to just be like, again, we keep talking about 1918, but like 1918 lasted for two years also they like, didn't not... know it was a virus they thought it was a bacterial infection and it right. was 1918 the bulk of our <laughs> like what we consider to be modern medical knowledge that united states like uses as an imperial cudgel <laughs> against the rest of the world and actually was after 1955 actually so, yeah. maybe sorry. no but and actually maybe this is a good this going walk, walking back that that timeline is a good thing for maybe a sort of possibly a last thing but for you know a brief history lesson, uh, I suppose, uh, which or just uh, not even a history lesson, but a brief, interesting fact mm-hmm. about, in particular, actually, teachers unions and New York City, which <laughs> is that um, so everyone, not everyone, <laughs> what am I saying? <laughs> Many people, uh, if, you're, if you're or if you're paying close attention to this episode, you'll know that the UFT, the United Federation of Teachers, is the is the like the New York chapter of the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, and they represent the UFT represents uh, New York City teachers. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that was not always the case. Mm-hmm. The original teachers union in New York City was actually called the Teachers Union, um, and it was the it was at that time the AFT uh, local branch but it was uh it was through a historical process that i won't get into um largely centered around red baiting it was uh (laughs) literally uh it was uh driven out in favor of a of a different um group who were like a splinter faction essentially but as of uh the early 1920s the teachers union in new york city was explicitly communist Damn. Um, Interesting. Yes. They were, uh, not only were they explicitly communist, they were uh, basically so communist that by 1935, uh, the basically the union leadership left to create the splinter union uh, and brought like 700 people with them because they were dissatisfied by how, um, uh, by how the rank and file essentially wanted the union to explicitly endorse more uh, more facets of like the Communist Party platform. Wow! Basically. Oh my god, this <laughs> is so based. I love it. Yeah, and yeah, this rules. But so basically, what happened is like so that 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 split happened around like the sort of uh, beginning of the McCarthy era. But literally, um, by you know the what is it like the forties, there was an, an an active campaign to drive communists out of. Uh, teachers unions and out of teacher teaching <laughs> positions in wow. New York City, um, which, by the way, not to, you know, this this means a lot of things to a lot of different people. But what I will say is in the 1920s, this union did, among other among other things, uh, things like they were advocating for desegregating New York City public schools. They were advocating for and one getting uh, textbooks removed from New York City public schools that had positive depictions of the KKK and of slavery, <laughs> things like that. This is stuff that they were doing. Um, and real reformism. But by yeah. but like the 1940s and 50s, <laughs> literally, there's um there's a book that I haven't uh, read yet, but that I found today basically and like skimmed through and was like so excited to look through. But basically, by like a certain point, uh, there was there was this like campaign of rooting out communists essentially. <laughs> And they would go like people like police would go basically and like root through teachers things and like assess lesson plans and things like that. And if their lesson plan wasn't like sufficiently pro U.S., they would become suspect 
Wow. So yeah, um, this is all this is all documented in um, in a number of different things. But there's a a really good book called Reds at the Blackboard: Communism, Civil Rights, and the New York City Teachers Union by Clarence Taylor. Wow, Um, cool. Sounds awesome. All that fucking indoctrination and all of that like careful government control to make sure there's no anti-American messaging or communist (laughs) messaging in their textbooks. And then we wonder why people like fucking fall for Kim Jong-un is presumed dead for like the sixth (laughs) time this year. (laughs) Totally. Uh, Anyway. Wow, that's so interesting. That's my gift to all of you. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Feels good. I can't wait to learn more about this because to be honest, the history of teachers unions in New York City is like, I think pretty it's one of the most uh varied histories in terms of like advocating for really good things and also really terrible things at the same time yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so i have to say i'm so glad that we got to have you guys on to talk about this because there's no one better to uh have a conversation about school reopening with than my favorite folks at works toppage um thanks for for listeners that are not familiar um Let's tell them a little bit about your show. Oh, yeah. So uh, Lena and I started Work Stoppage fairly recently, like a few months ago. And we just wanted to do a show that didn't feel like it was just kind of farting around in baby land. Like it actually had like (laughs) a a message and a point to it. So we kind of settled on something that we had a shared passion for and that Lena actually has some on the ground experience in, although I am just a humble idiot podcaster. (laughs) <laughs> it's yeah. good it's sometimes it's a good thing to be a dilettante you know yeah. <laughs> he, he doesn't give himself enough credit he knows what's going on uh but yeah i mean we we did this because uh it's one of the like radicalizing factors in my life and and john and i were actually around each other a lot while i was doing some of my initial organizing and like i don't know when i went through the union busting campaign that i went through it was very it's like when you ask for something that's good like let's say you ask for something healthy and then someone says no you can't have it this is this is like that's what it felt like where you're like (laughs) i'm asking for the good thing and you're saying no this is bad you don't do it look away like (laughs) you don't want to eat that salad that salad might actually kill you yeah (laughs) yeah and that's and that that just like really made me made me realize how like entrenched capital is in disenfranchising work and uh and ever since i i've kind of like progressed through my my education um and we both have and we got to this point where where we're like we there's not enough people talking about this i mean like you can Mm -hmm. we we say this in our first episode is like you can literally just google the word strike and you're gonna get new (laughs) results every single day yeah (laughs) And people don't know this. Like, you don't see tweets about it all the time. Like, if you follow a lot of lefty people, you might see more labor coverage than you normally would. But, like, so much of it never comes across the average person's, Mm -hmm. like, internet area. So I think we just wanted to be a show that, like took some of the stuff that we saw what was happening that was maybe underreported or just particularly like shocking to us from a labor perspective and mm-hmm. shine a light on it and kind of re-explain it in a way that's maybe more digestible to people who aren't as familiar with the inside baseball of labor history and labor relations, especially in the United States. Right. Totally. And one, Hell yeah. one thing that yeah. we, that I, I do want to say that we do that like is not, cause I also worked for a different, uh, like, 
radio program that was about unions at one point and they were a very like liberal like like mm-hmm. toe, toe the line of the union kind of kind of podcast yes, and, 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 yeah. and and like it was great i learned a lot i it was it was something that i enjoyed but i just could never i it frustrated me so often when we when like we would apologize for things like saying oh some lives are are willing to be sacrificed for covid19 because that's the kind of thing that would have showed up like they would have like bypassed that one detroit teachers union demand of like only saying that some people can uh uh stay home if they're at risk you know right. like like right. that's the that's the kind of thing that would have just been like let by the wayside and not like like said like called out loud to be changed to say that mm-hmm. this is right. not the culture that we need to be perpetuating no and, and to be honest i think i think work stoppage does that so well and one of the things that i really appreciate about what y'all do is that you know you critique the coverage too because the coverage of it is so important and so often i feel like you know unions are not necessarily always doing good things, but there's sort of like a, um, you know, you don't want to be anti-solidaristic. So union goes on strike and you cheer, right? Because every strike is, is like, yeah, well, that's great. And we but- did. We, 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 we covered the Bath Iron Works three times, but every single time yeah. we're like, this is military industrial complex. Yeah, Disclaimer. Right. <laughs> no, yeah. and I, I think it's Unions really important. Unions can be anti-solidaristic too. Sadly. Right. No, yeah. exactly. And, and it's true. It's like, you know, your, I think your means testing analysis of the um, Detroit Teachers Union is so apt because, you know, as you're saying, like to to uh, only say you can stay home if you have like a uh, doctor's note with a condition basically means that you had to have the money to get diagnosed in the first place. And we all know that that's a class oriented uh, gate kept situation. Mm -hmm. So thank you guys for all the work you do. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for for joining us us today. Oh yeah. Thank you so much for having us on. I love your show too. It's (laughs) the way that you see through bullshit and actually have the, the like, I don't even know like the the file cabinet of a memory that it takes to pull out <laughs> historical events and be like this yeah. is why we already should know that this is fucked up. I don't have that all the time so I really appreciate that as well. Yeah, y'all well, are great. You. I I I also um hang out in the the Death Panel Discord sometimes and do uh do a couple things with y'all and just amazing stuff. Just really great. You are the goddess of the Discord. You are Exactly. The- <laughs> also like you the- uh I help. <laughs> Your uh, your your end of podcast etiquette uh, to to plug the Discord is just impeccable. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so go ahead and support Work Stoppage at patreon.com slash work stoppage. Um, y'all do one episode a week. Highly recommend subscribing mm-hmm. to their show. If you have any interest in labor at all or just your ability to survive, cannot recommend them highly enough. Um Lena, John, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to plug your personal social media real quick before we wrap out? <laughs> sure. Yeah, you can follow me at Facebook Villain on Twitter. Yeah, um, and <laughs> you can follow me at Solidarity B, all one word. But I don't, I don't post a ton. I think maybe if if I magically get followers, I'll post or something. <laughs> Let's get Lena up to two K, so she has to post everybody. It's a real yeah, chicken really, yeah. kind of thing here. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, come hang with us all in the Discord mm-hmm. anytime. Yeah. Um, and if you'd like to support our show and get access to our second weekly episode, Patreon.com/slash Death Panel Pod. You also get a discount on merch. 
And um, because, you know, September is coming soon and everybody's thinking of fall, the Stay Alive Another Week hat is going to be available in black soon. Very exciting. <laughs> Stoked. Um, <laughs> Plugging the merch. It's right. a little joke that I make for myself. You know, that, that the like... white hat only is there until September 1st as a joke because you should always wear white after Labor Day. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's just that's about it for today. Yeah. Call it there. Uh, we'll catch you later in the patron episode next week. And um, in the meantime, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week. Cool. Great. Thank Yay. you. That's right. here on the Vitamin B Glandular Show.
Have you been to the English Depot?